Um, as a way of starting, um, my son Narayan is in the process of applying to grad school and as we were talking about his application, I was reminded of one of my favorite uh, applications I've ever seen to school. This is an essay written by a high school student in his application to college responding to tell us anything significant in your life, about anything significant. Dear friends in the admissions department, how can I describe myself? I'm a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I can tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. <laughs> I went single-handedly defended a, a small village in the Amazon from a horde of ferocious ants. <laughs> when I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my backyard, and I enjoy urban hand gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electric appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics, critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. <laughs> I don't perspire. I bat 400, children trust me. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish the entire dining room. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a toaster oven. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet, I've performed open-heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis but I've not yet gone to college. Please consider accepting me. <laughs> so I thought I'd email him this, <laughs> give him some ideas. But you know, we come from that sort of society, what we're supposed to be and do, be somebody. And, um, and it, this is much to do with the theme I'm gonna be exploring tonight with you, which is, um, how much pressure we have to distinguish ourselves, to be special, to meet certain standards. Um, it comes at a cost. I often call it uh, that we're, we're just programmed to take false refuge, which is to really spend a lot of our time and energy in some way trying to accomplish, not because of an innate sense of creativity or generativeness or pure service, but looking good, getting approval, meeting our own sense of feeling like a good person. And what happens is in those moments that we are mobilized around trying to in some way impress ourselves or the world that we're okay, um, in those moments we are not connecting with what really gives us refuge or nourishment. I was very struck by this because I uh, came back, I was away in Seattle last weekend and when I was out there, a, a number of people, when I teach often people will tell me the major things going on in their lives and one, uh, actually two women came up and both of them had sons with, that one was a son that was diagnosed with schizophrenia, the other bipolar and, and this, the urgency and the, the, the the terrible difficulty of living with that for them and their sons. And 
another who was living with divorce after a 35-year marriage. And then I came home and uh, one of my friends, very, very, very good friend, uh, has just been diagnosed with cancer. And, and in talking with each, it was the same exact inquiry, which is when it's difficult, when we're facing the big ones, really what do we turn towards? What gives refuge? What makes a difference? And it's never any of those 10,000 strategies we have for feeling better about ourselves. It always drops to a very deep place of love, presence, connectedness, always. So what we find is that the suffering of trance is that we get into a very small sense of what we are and we're living out of that and trying to reinforce it and prove it and protect it and defend it. And um, we live inside these stories of what will make this self better and what will make this life better, what makes, you know, what makes us a good self, you know, and what will give us a sense of control. And the Buddha described this as dukkha, the, the suffering of really being in this reactivity of trying to make life different. There's this sense of how it is is not okay. It's, it's not okay. Now this doesn't mean that we don't be creative and active and engaged, but there's a deep sense with dukkha that to be at peace, to be at home, it has to be different there's an innate restlessness that we can't just settle with what's right here. And so the inquiry, and I will be exploring it tonight, is really um, what allows us in the midst of the stressors and, and the inevitable losses and all the ways that life doesn't cooperate. You know, what really enables us to find a sense of freedom and peace in the midst? And I was um, reflecting on this and I remembered, uh, I'd shared this here last year, I think it was pretty close to this time, a story of of one friend who had experienced a loss, a different kind of loss than the ones I've named. Uh, His name's Joe and he's a carpenter who Uh, lives in West Virginia and he had left to go to a crafts fair and when he came back his workshop had burned to the ground and um, he had an almost finished project completely destroyed but it wasn't just that all of his uh, kind of a life collection of equipment and if you know something about carpentry there's these patterns and jigs and tools all gone and and you make a pattern that works and then you use it for the next and the next you keep developing it. So he lost more than just his equipment. And he felt the grief of that. You know, he felt the grief of that loss because he had built the workshop by hand and, and so on. And so he said he came back to this devastated site with twisted metal of cabinets that held tools that was now unrecognizable. And felt the grief, but he said that when he came back, he saw the view for the first time on his property, that he had seen it in whatever, 30 years since the workshop was there, he saw the view again now that the workshop was gone. And he said it reminded him of that very well-known Basho um, line, which is, my barn having burned to the ground, I can now see the moon. 
So there's something about these losses happen and if we remember what most matters they can reconnect us with what's timeless in that presence. Now he, was, he visited us uh, last week and he's rebuilt his workshop. And so I wanted to tell you that because being able to see the moon doesn't mean we stop building our workshops or exercising our bodies or working for social justice or whatever it is, a healthy earth. It just means that we can remember in the midst of what's going on the moon, that which is timeless, that which is sacred. That we remember the big picture because it's all going to come and go. The challenge is that our deep conditioning in the midst of this coming, going world is to try desperately to control it. We're every day just rigged to try to manage things so we get more pleasure and less pain and more comfort and more achievement according to all those standards, you know. We try to control things so we don't feel the rawness of our own pain. We can't help it. We're kind of designed that way to try to protect ourselves. But we're also designed to start noticing it. Ajahn Chah is a, um, a no longer alive, a, a Thai meditation teacher. And when he would be in the monastery and, and kind of walking around and looking at people, if he saw somebody having a really hard time, he'd go up to them and say, must be very attached, you know, must be very attached. And it's very simple that we might think to ourselves, well, I'm not, you know, particularly attached or whatever, but wherever we have reactivity, and we all have our places, whether it's around, you know, finances and the struggle with finances or sickness, our own body sickness, or how another's taking care of themselves, or in a relationship, our, our own sense of efficacy, of achievement. Wherever, we are, wherever it's sticky, that's the place of suffering. That's where our sense of who we are has shrunken and hitched itself to things going a certain way. So the Buddha basically described the mechanism of suffering as identification that we get identified with a story of a self moving through time that to be okay has to have life a certain way. We get identified with a small, separate, and often deficient sense of self. And so what I'd, I'd like to do in this exploration tonight is examine what I sometimes call the spacesuit self. So we can see for ourselves where are we hitched, where has our identity contracted, where aren't we able to remember the moon? What moments? And I call it the spacesuit self, as I've described here a number of times, because it's as if we come onto planet Earth, we incarnate, and it's not so easy. You know, the environment's not so easy. We're, we, we're born into culture that has a lot of greed and, and uh, grasping and aggression and families where there's been wounding through generations that get passed down so our parents aren't able to deliver the love and the attention and quite in the way this body-mind needs and sometimes extreme in terms of abusiveness. We need a spacesuit. So we develop this set of defenses to try to get through, ways we present ourselves to the world and the ways we kind of armor. And sometimes it's very physical that 
we might not even notice that we're moving around with our shoulders hunched over and our chest caved in, stomach in knots, because for so long it's become this familiar way of not feeling certain parts of our body. We have a spacesuit self. And one of the descriptions I think is most helpful in understanding it comes from the word persona. And persona means literally sing through. And in Greek theater, the actors use masks to sing through, and the mask was the egoic self. The mask would, would describe the kind of what I call sometimes the false self going through the life dramas of the insecurities and the gains and the losses and the excitement and the ups and downs, the, you know, achieving and accomplishing and then failing miserably. And it's kind of the way Zorba put it, kids, the family, the whole catastrophe, right? So that's the mask. But then the actors at the end of the day would go home, take the mask off and, and eat and play. And, and they knew who they were. They weren't, they weren't their mask. And yet what happens for us with the spacesuit or our mask is our sense of who we are gets hitched to that we are the defended one or the aggressive one or the failing one or the, or the special one. We get identified with our roles, we get identified as victim or as persecutor or whatever, perpetrator. So when we get identified with the mask, we forget the consciousness that's peering through. When we're identified with any of those roles, we forget a quality of wholeness, of sacredness. We, we aren't able to see the moon. We've contracted. The mask and the spacesuit are not the problem. We need them. It's part of social convention. It's sort of operating to have an egoic self. The problem, and by problem I mean the suffering, is that's what we think we are. We forget who we are. And the Buddha described this as the very essence of suffering, that we forget who we are. We lose sight. So spiritual maturity really is that these egos are here but we're able to use it with a light touch because we're remembering the moon. It's like, it's as if the barn is already burned down. We know these bodies are coming and going and these personalities and we can cherish what's here, cherish the waves, cherish our loved ones and know that it's coming and going. It's Ajahn Chah put it perfectly when he said, it's, he, he has this very beautiful uh, bowl that he loved. And, um, and so, and he, and he really, he, it was just, per, it was pan painted and so on. And when he talked about um, this kind of remembering the moon in his version of not being attached, he said, he, he lives with this bowl as if it's already been broken and shattered into a million pieces. And then he just enjoys it day by day, knowing that it's coming and going. So let's look. Let's look at the um, features of the mask a bit and see if we can... Because what I'm going to invite you to do is pick one role or one place you feel you get identified and, and see if you can find a little more freedom this evening around that. So the spacesuit or the mask is any sense of separate self where the mood is wanting or fearing. It's any kind of place we get into where I'm a self and we can feel those moods really moving through. And it usually consolidates into certain activities and roles. 
primary undercurrent of the spacesuit self is a doing self. That's the first way and primal way we contract, is a sense of that who I am is this doing self, and it's sometimes hard to rest. Um, we wonder why we get tired, because we're so identified with a doing persona. Our sense of okayness, our sense of getting away from that kind of raw uneasiness, keep doing, and even speed it up a little, you know. So we do, we perform and achieve and remodel train stations and jog and take children to dentists, promote our business, all of which are unto themselves fine activities except for that we get caught as a sense of a doing self. We can see when the role really contracts us. We can see it, let's say, with parenting, being a parent. When we dig in our heels and get offended because our authority isn't respected or worried because our offspring's not doing it the way we want them to do it so we can be sure they'll feel okay, you know, that kind of thing. Florida Scott Maxwell quipped, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. <laughs> I saw one, one little thing that said, two, two women were on a park bench and one says, oi. Then the other replies, oi. And then the first says, okay, enough about the children. <laughs> anyway, so we get into our parent role. And again, fine to be a parent. And when we get identified and there's the wanting and fearing, the who we are narrows, the sense of ourself narrows. We narrow when we're an employee and there's a sense of being lower in the hierarchy and needing recognition. Our, we can narrow as a meditator who is in some way judging ourselves or being lax in our practice or are inflated because we feel more spiritual. You know, the spiritual seeker who, you know, is uh, in some way either more special than others or blowing it. Um, we can get contracted as a social activist who gets caught in the outrage that um, make feeling virtuous and that others aren't really catching on or are in the self-improvement fitness type who's uh, really uh, feels entitled to feeling good and it's just wrapped around that. Another little story, when Thompson hit 70, he decided to change his lifestyle completely so he could live longer. He went on a strict diet, he jogged, he swam, he took sun baths. In just three months' time, Thompson lost 30 pounds, reduced his waist by six inches, and expanded his chest by five inches. Svelte and tan, he decided to top it all off with a sporty new haircut. Afterward, while stepping out of the barber shop, he was hit by a bus. As he lay dying, he cried out, God, how could you do this to me? And a voice from heavens responded, To tell you the truth, Thompson, I didn't even recognize you. <laughs> So we get caught. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> we are caught in, in, in a role and a persona whenever we're feeling superior or inferior and forgetting the essential sacredness, the light that's shining through. That's the sign, there's a forgetting. 
sometimes it's really distinct um, how much our role stops us from living from a more whole place. I heard one story of a, a man, an older man who smoked. He was a lifetime smoker and then he was hospitalized with emphysema after a series of small strokes and his daughter urged him, as she had done all of her life, to give up smoking. He refused. In fact, he asked her to buy him some more cigarettes. He told her, I'm a smoker this life and that's how it is. But several days later he had another small stroke and apparently in one of the memory areas of his brain it it was affected and then without concern he stopped smoking for good. But this was not because he decided to. He just woke up one morning and forgot he was a smoker. (laughs) To the extent that we're caught by our roles and identified we're unable to put them down and we suffer. I'm a smoker. I'm a victim. I hurt other people. That's my role, you know. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes it's just that we're moving through the day in our spacesuit self. And if we look closely, we'll notice that when we're in it, we always have an agenda with someone else. There's always an agenda. Sometimes it's to be approved of, sometimes it's to create a distance, sometimes it's just to be seen in a certain way. But it makes us less than all of who we are. One of my favorite descriptions, some of you might remember, a Michigan woman and her family were vacationing in a small New England town where Paul Newman and his family often visited. And so she goes through a five-mile hike and decides to treat herself to a double-dip chocolate ice cream cone, goes to this combination bakery ice cream parlor. And they're sitting there, the only patron in the store is Paul Newman. And he's, you know, having a donut and coffee. And her heart skipped a beat as she saw his, uh, him there with his famous baby blue eyes. And the actor nodded graciously and the star-struck woman smiled demurely. But inside she's going, pull yourself together. She says, you're a happily married woman with three children. You're 45 years old, not a teenager. And so the clerk fills her order and she took the double-dip chocolate ice cream cone in one hand and her change in the other, and then she goes out the door avoiding even a glance in Paul Newman's direction. She's gliding smoothly, trying to look good. She reaches her car, realizes she has a handful of change, but the other hand's empty. (laughs) Where's my ice cream cone? Did I leave it in the store? Uh Uh-oh, back into the store shop she goes, expecting to see the cone either in the clerk's hand or in a holder on the counter. No ice cream cone in sight. With that, she happened to look over at Paul Newman and his face broke into his familiar, warm, friendly grin and he said to her, you put it in your purse. (laughs) So we don't have all our wits about us, you know, we're kind of caught. The basic feature of being identified with our spacesuit self I would describe as dividedness. When we're caught in a role and we're divided from the wholeness of our own being, from our heart, from our awareness, and we're divided from others. When we're in a role, we're divided. So, we all have personas. We all have egoic selves that, you know, go through the world and present a certain amount and protect a certain amount. It's not something to get rid of. We have to be in the teacher role or the healer role or the artist role or the business person role or the parent role. And that's okay. 
The question is, can we play our roles and have a remembering? Even if the role is the one that's been rejected or the one that has just caused suffering for another, can we still remember? Because this conditioning plays out, stuff happens. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with us, it just, things play out. We make mistakes, we fail. We do great and we achieve and everybody thinks we're terrific. Stuff happens. Can we be in those roles, playing out the activities, even feeling all the feelings and still remember, still remember a quality of presence that lets us know what is true beyond the coming and going experience of living. That is the inquiry. I'll give you an example of one woman who um, had to investigate her own spacesuit because she was caught in uh, a lot of suffering. And that's usually, by the way, what motivates us to say, okay, where am I stuck? How am I contracted into this parent ego that feels like I'm, you know, ruining my child's life? Or how do we, how are we stuck? And for this woman, um, she was in a, a major kind of ongoing conflict with her partner and feeling chronically rejected and the sense was that she wasn't special, that, um, you know, he would choose often to go out with his friends instead of spend time with her. And even more, she sensed that he wasn't really interested in what she had to say, that he just wasn't that interested in her. And um, her underlying belief is that if I really mattered, he'd spend more time with me, he'd pay more attention to me, he'd marry, you know, it it just kind of, that was her equation. So her behaviors, the mass she took on, were getting, were being tight, being demanding, and then when she felt rejected, getting very aloof and distant. She'd, she'd swing and easily hurt and no fun. She was grim. And inside there was self-aversion. So that was the, con- that was the constellation of the, the spacesuit that she was living in. And so we started exploring it together, you know, this basic sense of I'm not special, I'm not interesting. And I asked her how familiar that was, because often if it's a space suit, you know, that's really causing suffering, it's very familiar and it's been going on for a long time. We've been very identified for years. And for her, it was a life pattern. Uh, She was a middle child and shy and not as you know, not as much of a draw of attention as her older brother who, you know, ended up becoming a lawyer and being very, very quick and witty and so on. So she, you know, at the dinner table, that's always where it plays out, right? She just didn't get much attention. And so she had this undercurrent of feeling that I'm just not as special or worthwhile. And as she got in touch with that, she sensed underneath that the grief that she had just spent so many years in her li- of her life with this idea and feeling of I don't matter, I'm not interesting, I'm not special. And then she realized I haven't been interested in paying attention to myself. Now that is often the other side of the spacesuit. We believe one thing, we believe I'm the uh, the victim, and then we realize in some way I have been victimizing myself. It's not someone, maybe somebody else 
has rejected me or been disinterested, but underneath that I've been hard on myself. I haven't been really honoring myself. I haven't been interested in the life that's here. I haven't respected this life. It's a flip. That motivated her to bring a much more uh, tender and attentive kind of presence to her inner life. And that became her meditation, is when she would feel herself reacting externally in her spacesuit pattern, she would, oh, what's happening? And really bring an interest and a care to what was going on inside her. Gradually, she was able to ask what I consider the really important question. You know, if I wasn't believing this, if I wasn't believing that I'm not interesting or special, who would I be? What would my life be without that belief? And you can ask yourself that. If you're going around with the belief of, I'm not lovable or I'll never be successful or I deserve to be rejected or whatever it is, who would I be without that belief? But you can't ask that prematurely. First you have to feel the raw experience of what's going on when you're believing it, when you're in that spacesuit identity. That's what she did. And by doing that, she began to deepen her attention in a way that she contacted a presence with herself that let her know who she was. It was as if she saw the moon, that stuff was crumbling and she could see the moon again. She could see the radiance of her own presence. She could sense the sacredness that was there, that was beyond interesting. It wasn't even a matter of interesting. It was God, it was spirit, it was who she was. Getting in touch with that and then over and over coming to trust that's who I am, this presence, this sense of uh, the divine, um, made a change in her aura and her energy field. It made her more interesting, but that wasn't the point. The point was she had come home to who she was beyond her persona, Behind, beyond the small beliefs that were really uh, contracting her. So let's, let's explore this a little to give you a chance to choose something you might want to pay attention to. Just uh, sit in whatever way allows you to be alert and then uh, close your eyes. and arrive in whatever way helps you to get right here. So you might take a few conscious breaths and let that collect you. And as part of arriving, just feel your intention in this moment to be present, to see if it's possible to wake up a little. We all have our blind spots, our places of being identified just by paying attention to what might have been not so conscious, we begin to discover freedom. You might review in your life what some key roles are. And it might be as parent, as a boss or an employee, as a helper, as a patient, as a pursuer, in a relationship or someone who is uh, 
uh, or is pushing away. Has an important special person or someone that's failing. So just to sense if there's any persona or role, a spacesuit identity that you get caught in sometimes. Wherever there's suffering, that's a sign that there's an identification with something less than who you are. For some it's being young and not not really being respected and getting there yet. And for others it's being irrelevant because you're old. We all have places we get identified, beliefs and feelings that keep us less than that wholeness. You might sense as you just identify the kind of spacesuit, the role, the beliefs, what the fears are behind it. What is it you're afraid is going to happen? What's the worst thing that you're trying to protect from happening? Behind any contracted identity there's fear. Fear of what's going to happen to a separate self. What's the wanting there? What is that, that role or that belief trying to get you? Sometimes you can sense from the spacesuit self, maybe you can ask the question, what is it you really don't want other people to see or know about you? In other words, how is this mask or this spacesuit role trying to hide something? Or what is it you really do want people to see? Is there some way this, that this persona is trying to present something? Again, some of these questions might be useful, some not. The invitations to examine where you get identified, what you're believing when you're identified. Is it that you're failing in some way? that you can't be happy unless you're different? What's the real need at the core of this particular place in you? Is it the need to feel safe? The need to feel loved, valued, worthy? The healing and awakening from the identification is by bringing presence to the place that's vulnerable. So whatever the need is or the fear, in these next few moments, 
give your presence to that place just as this woman paid attention to her own inner life offer your attention to the place of fear or hurt for some it helps to put the hand on the heart as a way of really giving the message I'm here, I'm here with this when the mask is not conscious when the need is not conscious it keeps on driving us when we offer sacred presence to what's here we start opening and coming home again if it helps you to put your hand on your heart you might vary the pressure so that you can really sense that you're touching your own being with a quality of tenderness sending a message, I'm here I care about this suffering as you continue to investigate you might ask that question who would I be if I didn't believe the belief that's keeping me small? who would I be without that? what would life be like without that? who would I be if I weren't living in the identity of the hurtful one or the victim of the failure or the special one? sensing the moon, the luminosity and presence and wholeness that looks through the mask that's always here but forgotten sometimes and while we're going to close this particular reflection in a few moments know that this is an ongoing life inquiry to sense where we're identified and if we can bring presence to what's underneath if we can come back home to a wholeness of being okay, so just take a few breaths let's open your eyes so an essential part of spiritual development is to recognize the different ways we get identified and by bringing presence to them coming back home to the timeless essence of what we are to who's looking through the mask and by doing that, by remembering the wholeness of who we are we're then able to live through our ego the forms, the roles in a way that can be really creative and helpful in other words, these human bodies get animated by spirit if we're remembering spirit then the way these bodies and minds and move through the world is part of the healing of the world it's said that Siddhartha the man, needed to recognize Buddha nature for this awareness to fully manifest through Siddhartha 
In other words, the man who could act with compassion and teach and heal. He had to know his Buddha nature for the man to be able to walk this earth in a healing way. Jesus needed to recognize Christ's nature to become fully who he was as Jesus on earth. Each of us is the same. Our spiritual life is to realize the spirit that animates, the emptiness of self, the fullness of heart, and to allow that to guide and animate these particular forms with their personalities and their minds and their ways of of living. In the Zen tradition, there's a um, teaching that the perfection of Zen is the appropriate response or action in any given moment. That if you're really in full presence, that there's this natural, spontaneous way of responding. If somebody needs help, you give help. If you're thirsty, you drink. It's just you move when you need to move. There's a simplicity of responding because you're so much resting in that presence and not hooked in some smaller identity. The gift of waking up from identifying with our mass is that we truly begin to serve the healing of our planet, that we really can respond. There's no longer that self-centeredness that's so preoccupied with me trying to feel better or me trying to impress or me trying to defend so we can respond appropriately, as they say in the Zen tradition. The other gift of waking up from seeing past the mask is really that we see past the separation uh, that creates so much suffering between ourselves and others. It's very profound uh, when we are, as the situations I mentioned at the beginning, facing, uh, facing great loss. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, The day my mother died, I wrote in my journal, A serious misfortune of my life has arrived. I suffered for more than one year after the passing away of my mother. But one night in the highlands of Vietnam, I was sleeping in the hut in my hermitage. I dreamed of my mother. I saw myself sitting with her and we're having a wonderful talk. She looked young and beautiful, her hair flowing down. It was so pleasant to sit there and talk to her as if she had never died. When I woke up, it was about two in the morning and I felt very strongly that I had never lost my mother. The impression that my mother was still with me was very clear. I understood then that the idea of having lost my mother was just an idea. It was obvious in that moment that my mother is always alive in me. I opened the door and went outside. The entire hillside was bathed in moonlight. It was a hill covered with tea plants and my hut was set behind the temple halfway up. Walking slowly in the moonlight through the rows of tea plants, I noticed my mother was still with me. She was the moonlight caressing me, as she had done so very often, very tender, very sweet, wonderful. Each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine alone, but a living continuation of my mother and my father and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, of all my ancestors. These feet that I saw as my feet were actually our feet. Together, my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. So this again is the 
barn burning down and seeing that which is timeless. To cherish his mother while she was in form and cherish that which is timeless and can never be lost. The love, the presence, it can never be lost. That is the gift of being able to wake up from a small identification. We not only wake up from our sense of my mask, my persona being who I am, but we see each other and see these bodies, these changing forms, and see in the eyes that are looking at us who's really looking through. Timeless, sacred, the divine, can't be lost. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. He um, writes this as kind of like a love song. It's called The Old Mendicant. Being rock, being gas, being mist, being mind, being masons traveling among galaxies with the speed of light. You have come here, my beloved one, You have manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings and as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you looked at me this morning tell me you have never died. So let's just uh, take a few moments again to pause, to be quiet, and to come home to that space of presence which really is timeless. Let your senses be wide open. You can listen to and feel this whole moment. Include whatever might be wanting attention in your body or your heart, just to notice. Perhaps it's physical tiredness or discomfort, Maybe your heart is sad, maybe it's peaceful. However it is right now, in the deepest way to just notice and say yes, letting it be here. Noticing what's happening and also sensing that presence that's aware, the one who's looking through the mask, the silence that's listening. This awake, empty heart And we'll close again with Thich Nhat Hanh's poem and just listening as if it's addressed to you. Being rock, 
being gas, being mist, being mind, being the masons traveling among galaxies with the speed of light, you have come here, my beloved one. You have manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings and as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you looked at me this morning tell me you have never died. May we remember the timeless presence that is our true nature in our home. And may these lives be lived with that remembrance, with love, with creativity, with presence in all moments. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.